I was reading this week, GCF staff is going through a book of sermons by a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher during the 1800s and was the original hipster. Um, And he said something really interesting about culture. Uh, Here he is writing 200 years ago, and he says that culture was obsessed with this term progress. He said it almost became this mantra that they repeated ad nauseum, almost thinking, almost as if if they say progress enough, culture would progress. And we too, 200 years later, still live in a culture where progress is the buzzword of the day. In fact, it's so central right now that we are often categorized, especially during election season, we're categorized on our view towards progress, right? The country is split into these two camps right now. They're the conservatives, those who want to conserve uh, something, conserve how government was, conserve a moral stance, conserve a set of values. And then contrary to the conservatives, there's the progressives who want to progress past a set parameter of values, past a, a former method of government. And while each of them is for progress in their own way, The question that Spurgeon asked these progressives is the same question we need to ask right now, and that's, what are we progressing from? And what are we progressing to? What are we making progress towards? And we always see slogans all over the place, right? Corporate slogans on commercials like moving forward, building a better tomorrow. But why? Why is it that we are always obsessed with progress? I think right now, if any of you have been paying attention to the news, We don't need to look very far as to why we're obsessed with progress. Because you look at the riots in Charlotte, look at bombings in New York, stabbings in Minneapolis, names like Alton Sterling, Terrence Kirshner, and Michael Brown. These are all things which expose something. See, we all know we need to move on from something, and whether we can name that something or not, we know that something is broken. Something is wrong. There is hate, there is pain. You see, there's, there's tsunamis, there's AIDS, there's famine. Our world is a tough place enough just by the natural disasters that come. But when you add the human component, aren't we amazed at how hard it is even for us to get along? Look in the microcosm of your life with your roommate or with your, even your closest friend, with your parents, people we love. There are moments of flaring emotion. Moments where we're frustrated, moments where we're angry, moments where our hearts would kill if they could. You see, humanity is good in a lot of ways, but it's also hostile. It's angry. It's unbalanced. It's unstable. And it's arrogant. So while we see that progress needs to happen in some area, we need to ask ourselves, how do we progress well? And what kind of progress is going to fix this problem? Is the problem simply that we're not connected enough to one another. We don't know, us in white Montana, we don't know and we can't relate to the black south. We can't relate to the urban centers. Is it that Protestant America can't relate to Muslim cultures? Why is it? I don't think it has anything to do with our connection because last time I checked, we're more connected than we've ever been before to other people. In fact, a survey which happened in 2011, which is almost six years ago now, showed that on your phone, the average teenager has 664 social ties. At the pad of your finger, you can be connected to 664 people. I don't want an excuse why I can't invite people to GCF. 208 is the average followers we have on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, 
LinkedIn, YouTube, YouTube, I sound like an old guy, the YouTube machine. <laughs> All of these things connect us to one another. We know more people than we've ever known. We, we recognize their name. We recognize their faces. We know what they're pa passionate about. But why is it that despite this great network of interconnectedness and connectivity, we're not really progressing in our ability to be human? We haven't outgrown riots. We haven't outgrown hate crimes. We haven't outgrown murder. We haven't outgrown arguments and hate and anger. Perhaps in our quest for progress, in our quest for being connected to everything, we've actually progressed past what it means to be human. I just watched today the newest version of Jimmy Kimmel's Mean Tweets. I don't know if you guys have watched this before, but what it is is they get celebrities on and they make celebrities read mean tweets about them. And it's funny, but why is it funny? It's funny because no one would actually say these things to these people. If you were standing in front of Judd Apatow was one of them. Um, I can't remember who some of the other ones were, but if you were standing in front of them, Ryan Gosling was one, you wouldn't say these things to him. Why? Because it's a person, and that person's right there in front of you. And regardless of how we feel about it, it changes the way we relate to it. I remember, so I'm a big Grizzly football fan. I used to hate on players who were doing really poorly openly on social media. And then I started being the chaplain of the team and I realized that person's right there. And yet I was connected to them. I knew they existed. I knew they were on this media platform, but they became less than human. And oftentimes our connectedness to one another, though we feel so interconnected, we feel so personable because we have 664 contacts at the pad of our fingers. But it's just an illusion of a progressive community. Sure, it's helpful to hear voices. We're hearing more about what it's like to be a black person in America than we ever have before. But we're also more prone than ever to make people into digital talking points, into electronic affirmations into arguments and numbers in favor of your current view. These amount of people support me. It doesn't matter that they're people. It just matters that they support you. Anyone who doesn't support you can be unfollowed, unliked, or hidden. You don't have to interact with them. You, you can surround yourself with people who are just like you and feel connected and human, but it's undermining the core of what it means to be truly human. So if technology and connectedness, which consumes our life, doesn't fix us. What is the root problem? What is it that causes this strife among us? What is it that's happening in Charlotte, that's happening in Aber, that's happening in Spokane, and that's happening in San Diego? Because it's everywhere. The Bible asks a similar question. James chapter 1, or chapter 4, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? The million dollar question. James goes on. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, but you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask and you do not, you, do, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Have you ever thought about it? Why is it that you fight? Why is it that we're so easily triggered with frustrations? Why is it 
that we automatically see divides by, in terms of what our skin looks like or what our voice sounds like? Why is it that we're categorized to think less of people who immediately, just on face fight with ever meeting them, look different, talk different, act differently? On a darker side, why is it that some men feel right and justified to steal away women and force them to be trafficked for sex? Why is it that certain aspects of our culture feel right about child pornography? Why is it that the most grotesque things in this world are still being demanded? Because demand shows that there's a market. Why is it that despite the rosy posy views we like to put on humanity on TLC, that we still have deep, dark wounds towards one another? James just answered it. He says, because we have warring passions inside of us. Warring sin and desires. You see, sin makes us discontent. It makes us desire things which are not ours. It makes us strive for the desires that other people have, that we might take them, if not by coercion and mystery and manipulation, then by force. And if it's not external force, it's sure in our mind. How many of us say we, we know a friend who has something that we like, we know somebody who's a lot better than us in class, and we just hope they fail that next test. We hope they have to eat their words and that smile gets wiped off of their face. See, one of my favorite writers, a guy I'm lobbying, if we have a third child and it's a boy, that we can name him Ryle. His name is J.C. Ryle. He has this wonderful quote, and it's, it goes like this. It says, it's a, sh it's a shame that sickness is contagious and health is not. Isn't that true with our humanity? Man, we're not progressing into this human utopia. Despite technology, despite time, despite healthcare, despite governments, despite geography, despite these political systems which preach this utopian dream, whether it's communism or fascism or capitalism, We've never gotten to this place where it's perfect. We've never gotten to this place where people live side by side in unity and peace. Why is it? Because sin has isolated us from God, who is the creator of humanity. And if we're isolated from the creator of humanity, our sin has isolated us from everyone who's inside of that humanity. And what we're going to see tonight is that the gospel unites us to true progress by reconciling us to Jesus. The solution to all of this interpersonal conflict isn't actually resolving the interpersonal conflict. The solution is going to be solved through Jesus Christ. So my, my, my plea to you is that if you really want to participate in the reconciliation and healing in this world, in this country, right now, you must know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to shape the way you interact with conflict all around you. So let's pray real quick. Lord, uh, we come before you because we know we need you. Lord, we have all conflict in our hearts at varying levels. Conflict with you, conflict with friends, conflict with teachers, conflict with parents, conflict with our own emotions. Paul talks about desiring the things we don't want to do and doing the things we do, or, and not doing the things we want to do. We are even conflicted in our own desires and we're frustrated with ourselves. But Lord, there's a way to be reconciled, to be brought back, to be restored, to be renewed. 
And we want to know that tonight. And we want to know that because as we'll discuss next week, we want to make that known to the world around us. Lord, the only solution to the pain, the emptiness, and the loneliness of this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you make us to know that tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, um, our culture talks about uh, this, uh, el- how we eliminate hostility two ways. One is connectedness, right? Uh, Dell has this slogan and campaign. It just says connecting to what's important. If we can connect, it'll fix things. We realize that doesn't work. The next thing culture tries to offer us is if we're all the same. If we're all the same, no one desires anything the other person has because we all have the same. If we're all the same, we don't have competing desires because I want this and you want this because we want the same things. And so we need to become the same. We eliminate race. We eliminate gender. We eliminate income gaps. We eliminate boundaries. We eliminate languages. We eliminate societies. But it's funny. One of my favorite scenes in The Office, uh, I got to have my token office reference in here, is uh, the fire episode. Ryan started the fire. And uh, in it, there's this fire and the smoke alarm goes off and you see Michael Scott, who's the boss, just tear out of his office. He's like shoving people aside and just sprinting out the building. And then it flashes to him in his interview outside the building. He says, yeah, I was the first one out of the building. Yeah, I've heard the phrase women and children first, but we don't employ children. We're not a sweatshop. And women are equal in the workplace by law. So I let them out first and I have a lawsuit on my hands. And it's hilarious. And the reason why it's hilarious is because it's insane, right? What he's talking about is stupid. And yet, what he's talking about is exactly what some people propose as the solution. It's funny because we know generic sameness doesn't solve anything because we're different. We're all equal. We're all made in the image of God. We all have the ability to have right standing through the same means, but we're all different. Caleb's six foot seven and white. Johnny's not, and he's not white, and God made him that way. And Johnny is not going to look like Caleb tomorrow, and that's good for him. (laughs) God made us diverse. And it's so funny that a culture which loves diversity is actually promoting something which undermines it. It makes us all bland. But we're going to look at the Bible's solution to this problem. And it's interesting because the Bible picks up on that theme of sameness, but it finds it at a different source. Because while the solution has to do with something being the same, it doesn't mean that we all need to become the same because humans won't fix this problem. Let's look, begin to look at the main passage we're going to look at tonight, which is Philippians 2. Uh, and this is where it starts, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 2, part of what Andrea read for us earlier. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here we see the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Philippi, this church which is divided by racial tensions. Surprise, surprise, it existed 2,000 years ago. It exists today. hasn't been solved. The internet didn't fix it. Politics didn't fix it. And here we see him saying terms that our culture loves, right? How many of you have heard terms like this, especially this week? If you've been encouraged, if you have love, if you want to participate, 
If you have affection, if you have sympathy, be of the same mind and of the same love of one heart. The same love. Does that sound really good? Don't we want that? I mean, that's our first point tonight. Here we see in the Bible, and there we see out there in culture, this quest for the same love. We want the same love. If humanity were all of the same love, wouldn't that eliminate hostility? I mean, we don't have to all be the same, but if all of our desires are the same, if we all desire similar objects, wouldn't that tension you have with your parents be gone? Because you each want the same thing. Maybe that tension they have over your major, over your life choices, it would be removed. Maybe that hurt between you and the people who have wronged you would go away because you have the center of of a similar affection. The hate between people groups who have been warring for centuries, it would be gone. If we all had the same love, wouldn't we act differently towards each other? Because we now have a mutual interest, which was never there before. We could stand next to someone who's completely different than us, and we could be connected to them because we have a same love. I, met, I, did, I was doing the Grizzly Chapel the other weekend, and I knew like three people in there, and I asked their names, and one guy was from Tennessee, and I asked him if he was a Titans fan. First time I've ever spoken words to him, and he said yes, and we were connected, because I'm a Titans fan. We've all had moments like that, right? You run into someone who you've never met before, but you find a center of affection, a joint interest, and you begin to form a real community. You begin to form something that's real and true, The question is, is the key just everybody loving the Tennessee Titans? What's the object of that love? Is it the open outdoors of Montana? If everybody loved the big size sky state, that would fix everything. What is the same love? What defines it? Because if culture's left to define love on their own, haven't we seen that already? Anything's love. And when anything's love, nothing's love. Love becomes a subjective mess, which is whatever gratifies us at that moment. Pursue whatever your heart desires. But Paul, in writing Philippians, he didn't leave it undefined. He started his message with this. If there's any encouragement in Christ. So he's not offering for, he's not saying, culture, find love and pursue it. He's prescribing a love. He's defining a love. And that means if we want to have any conversation about the restoration of men towards each other, it has to start with Jesus at the center. This goes for you and whatever, uh, whatever emotions or hardships or uh, trials you have between people, whether it's, you can think of it. We all have areas in your life where we have unresolved tension and pain and hurt. And we all think of ways to resolve that, don't we? What can I do? What can I say? What needs to be done? What will he think? What will she do? But if we as Christians begin to address that tension without addressing the person of Christ, we're going to miss the same love. We're going to miss the same mind. We're going to miss the encouragement. In a world where love is everywhere, so says culture, but peace is less to be found, What if I told you we could find a clear picture of the same love? What if I told you there there was a love out there that is both personal and universal? See, that's the great thing about this. Personal and universal. Think about that. We typically find love that's either universal, like everyone likes to breathe, good for you, or personal, 
Like every, they're like weird people who like pink creatures and Dungeons and Dragons third edition card sets. Steven. All of us identify with this, but that's pretty weak. We all love to breathe, but I mean, we also love black licorice or red licorice, the great dividing line of culture. And while there are some people who really love pink dragon creatures in third edition card decks, that's a smaller group. But what if there was a love diverse enough that it was so drastically personal that it fit the need of every individual intimately? And yet at the same time, it was so comprehensive that it was universal in its offering. This love, this universal application of restoration is the love which comes through Christ Jesus. It knows no distinction. It honors no color. It respects no creed. It sets no social class. And it's freely offered to all who are in need. And that's the love Paul's writing on. That's the true love. That's love at the basis of same love, a love which changes things. And when we all have that similar love, it does change things. Paul begins to talk about how things are changed. In verses three and four, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. That sounds really good. Who wouldn't want to live like that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Think not only of your own interests, but also the interests of those who are around you. Who wouldn't want to live like that? Apparently all of us, because <laughs> so few of us do this, right? We all love the idea of humility. We all love the idea of service. But turn on the news. It's not showing up. It's not, th there's no opening, there's no 10 o'clock news tonight, which opens with the headline, man saves woman's 10 puppies from fire. Because that's not the dominant storyline of our culture. In fact, it, we're almost trained to desire the opposite. How often are we marketed to with phrases like, you've earned it, you deserve it, or for you Parks and Rec fans, treat yourself. It's all about you. And it should be about you is what culture says. Isn't it interesting? So I even get, this is how twisted our hearts are, how broken are. I get frustrated when people are nice to me. Like, you, have you all been at the stop sign, like the four-way stop, and you all pull up at the same time, and someone tries to wave you on when you're waiting for them to go first? They're like, oh, oh come on, you can go. And you're like, you're supposed to go, dang it! <laughs> we to, how sick are our hearts when someone tries to do something nice for us? And we're like, idiot. Something's wrong. Humility and thinking of the interests of others is not natural for us. And that's why this passage, though it should be a platitude put on every coffee mug, is so hard. Because it addresses both having humility in our interaction with people and desiring the interest of others in our view of people. You see, it's one thing to be concerned about others. We're all probably at some level concerned about others. But it's another thing to act on it, isn't it? To think of the interest of others, we can do that. We can see it. When we read stories on the news about bombings in Pakistan and mothers having to go and harvest their kids out of the rubble, we're concerned about that interest. But are we going to do something about it? Probably not. But on the flip side, for some of us, it's really easy to, to act humble and meek. I'm an introvert. 
a lot of places, I pull off humble really well because I just don't talk. But I really don't care about people. There's a lot of times where sometimes the most humble people in interaction are the most vain in their own minds. But here we see that a true call for humanity is concerned both with how we interact with one another and how we view one another. Think about that in your own life. When was the last time you thought or acted for the well-being of someone else over and above the well-being of yourself? When was the last time where that was a legitimate debate in your mind that lasted more than a second? Should I, uh, the game's on. Man, wait until you're married. <laughs> There's so many more creatures in your life that demand your help, and it's so easy to just be like, let me just look at Twitter for a little bit. I don't know how many times I've told my wife, I will, while she's asking for something. But don't stand up and do it. And when was the last time when you did do something for someone else that it was genuinely connected to caring for them instead of meeting some sort of general obligation? I know I should do this. It's like helping people move. No one really cares about helping people move. You do it out of obligation. But what if we really cared about it? Isn't that more joy producing for you? Isn't that more honoring to the individual? Think of what our world would look like. Think of what, what this campus would look like if the 20 some people who are in here lived this way. What would the rest of your night look like? You'd pay for my bill at Jakers. This would change so much, wouldn't it? To not only act, but to think differently about individuals. What would our riots look like? What would our hate crimes look like? What would our evening news broadcasts look like? What would our computer browsing histories look like if we valued the life of others over and above our own pleasures? But here's the rub. Here's why we can read these verses and say wholeheartedly, I want to be humble. I want to hear the interests of others. I want to act that way. Why we can hear and affirm all that, but wrestle with it. It's because the call to act humbly is impossible unless you are genuinely humbled by an outside source. Humility is less of a mindset. You could sit in here and say, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be humble. But it's not just a mindset. Humility is a response to something greater. You aren't born humble. You are humbled. It happens to you. And this is what stands at the Bible's picture of same love. This is our second point. The humbling reconciliation of Christ. How do we become humble? How do we become concerned, concerned with someone else? How are we to live in this way so that we can get access to a same love? So we can care about people in a genuinely human way. How we can contribute to humanity in a sustainable, eternal, merit-filled manner. Paul says this. Immediately after that, he says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I recently read a story about a small Christian school which was struggling financially. And a wealthy potential donor 
um, came to the university, and he was looking for the president, and he found uh, this guy and uh, kind of your, your typical janitor on campus, kind of grubby clothes, covered in paint. He was painting a fence. Um, he's the only one around, so the guy, the donor goes up and he asks the painter, he says, hey, uh, we're going to find the president's office. And so the painter points to the president's office. He says, I know he's out of the office till noon. So the man uh, goes, gets a Grizz burrito or whatever you do on this campus. Um, can you imagine how good is the Grizz burrito on a secular campus, using words from that? Imagine if a Christian made a Grizz burrito. Um, sidebar. Uh, and so, so he goes, he gets his Grizz burrito, he fills his time, he shows up at the president's office, he knocks on the door, and he opens it, and he's greeted by the same man who is painting the fence. But this time the paint is gone, and he's dressed in his business clothes. And at that moment, the donor is so amazed at the humility of this college president who humbled himself to the point of a lowly janitor to help assist in the running of his university that on the spot he wrote a $50,000 check. You see, the humility of that president it, it, in painting a fence, it brought in a large donation of wealth. The humility of Jesus when he left the office of heaven to take on the flesh of man, it opened the storehouses of salvation. See, do you understand the scandal of Jesus coming down to earth? Of Jesus taking on flesh? I mean, think about it this way. Which of you right now in this room would rather be on a street corner in downtown Charlotte? None of you because it's dangerous, because it's heated, because it's hostile. And yet, here we have the Son of God who never knew the burden of sin, never knew the pain of hate, the ache of humanity, because he lived in perfect relationship with God as the supreme divine ruler over all things. And he became you. He became a man. He didn't count, I love it, what it says, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word literally means to be hoarded. He didn't hoard his perfection for the benefit and comfort of his own worship, but he gave it up so that through his equality he might not simply sit on his throne comfortable to himself, but that he might serve the people of God whom he came to save. Jesus the divine creator, the God over all things, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity came to serve you. Came, imagine how impressive it would be if you went to the food zoo yesterday and you saw Royce Ingstrom slopping your food on a plate. You don't belong here. How honored would you be in that moment despite what you think? It'd be different. And Jesus entered into not only a physical world, but he entered into a hateful world. Things Jesus never knew became his reality. He was mistreated. He was mocked. He was spat on. He was murdered. His service to you, Jesus the Christ, was dying a miserable death on a criminal's cross for sins he never committed. How is it that we're supposed to act humbly towards men? We're to look at Christ. 
If Christ got up off of his throne of righteousness and justice in heaven, you can get off your stool of self-righteous consumption and serve those who are around you. For who had more than the one who made all things? Who gave up more than the one who was due all glory and honor? And who humbled himself more than Jesus who died in our place? You see, it's not connectedness to humanity which saves us, but connectedness to the Jesus who saves humanity that makes us true reconcilers. Because when we see what Jesus did for us, it makes everything else reasonable as a response to the pain and hurt. We look at races and we use words like racial reconciliation because we know that there are two warring parties that need to be reconciled. They need to be brought back together. But no one people group has sinned against another people group like humanity has sinned against the God of the universe. We rejected his rule. We spat on his grace. We overthrew his, his kingdom. We murdered his son. Yet look at Colossians chapter 1. 15 through 20, speaking of Jesus, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Jesus came to reconcile us. If you want to know what that means, turn on your news, find a good article by someone writing from a black perspective on what's going on today, and look at the longing for reconciliation. Look at the centuries-old wounds of hate, and know that Jesus reconciled those who were worse. Jesus' sacrifice covers a social blight which all of humanity found themselves in. And when we are humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get a better picture on what reconciliation is. We have a better word for what's going on rather than simply dismissing it in our white American way. We begin to finally see what it means to be truly human and to help in a truly human way. You see, remember what we read in James where it says quarrels and fights are caused by our warring passions inside of us are things which can't make up our mind, which desire and covet. And what that means is that we could remove all the guns, all the voice boxes, and all the keyboard warriors from our world, and it wouldn't solve anything because it doesn't solve the problem of passion. But Jesus died to remove that. Jesus waged war on the passions of sin and death and hate when he went to the cross. Jesus killed the passion of, of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance and isolation when he went to the cross, not for himself, but for the humanity that would believe in him. And this means that when we see ourselves as reconciled to Christ, we know that we can adequately reconcile men to each other. And this sounds like just this Christianese thing. 
To be reconciled to Jesus is to have a better idea of how to reconcile men to each other. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot on a small scale, but what does it mean on a big scale? Paul continues, Philippians 2, 19 through 11, says this, or 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that it is above every name, now pay attention here, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the same love. You want to know where humanity will one day and ultimately be reunited? It's at the foot of Jesus Christ. To love humanity well, to participate in true progress, to preach a truly human need to a truly human problem is to hold up high the Jesus to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. If you want to participate in change, if you want to participate in reconciliation, if you want to participate in redemption, participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we have nothing better to hold up for ourselves and we have nothing better to hold up for our world torn apart by sin. This is our final point tonight. To be reconciled to Christ is to be reconciled to one another. See, the word ethnicity, it's defined as meaning a social group which shares a common and distinctive culture, religion, language, or the like. Ethnicity, by definition, is a people group bound by something. And it's no surprise that ethnicity is generally the easiest way people are divided and by which we divide. We do it naturally. It happens by where you're born. It happens by what you associate with. It happens by what language you speak. We become ethnic groups by birth, and those carry with it natural connotations. This is who I am. This is who I'm not. This is who I talk to. This is who I don't talk to. This is what I talk like. This is what I don't talk like. This is who I like, and this is who I hate. This is why I love passages like 1 Peter 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that's God's, own possession. So here, there's something really important. He calls them three things, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. So that phrase, holy nation, in Greek is literally ethnos agion, what did you hear there? Ethnos agion. It literally means a holy ethnic. There's a different Greek word for people. But here, there's a new ethnic group created in our salvation. When we respond to the reconciling gospel of Jesus Christ, we're given a new ethnicity. And it doesn't change our current ethnicity. It doesn't erase our background it doesn't destroy our individuality, but instead it enhances it by adding a new heading over the core of your entire existence. Your ethnicity is Christ, and when Christ is your ethnicity, it changes the way you interact with one another. I love Coke Zero. I don't like sodas. I love Coke Zero. And I love when my fridge has a Costco flat of Coke Zero with like 80,000 glorious black cans sitting in my fridge. And you'll notice something. You, can, you will know when you come over to my house 
how recently I bought a pack of Coke Zero. Because if I recently bought it, I will offer you one, because I have plenty. But now, I have very few, and I will not only not offer them to you, I will hide them in places you will never find them. <laughs> Why? Because I'm scared that they'll go away. I'm scared that I'll lose them. I'm worried that I'll run out. You see, it's important to know our new identity in Christ because so often we don't engage in a truly human way. We don't humbly love others. We don't live to serve the interests of others because we're worried about losing something else. But if we are found in Christ, we have lack of nothing. We can share our reconciliation. We can serve one another. We can care one another. We can offer ourselves up like Jesus did who offered himself up to death. We can stress our bodies in the service of others, both physically and spiritually. We can go further, press harder, live differently, and cry out earnestly for the well-being of others because we will never run out of the joy which satisfies us in Christ Jesus. If we are stunned at the gospel of reconciliation, we will live a life of surplus freely given to those who are around us. And this shapes the way we seek to relate to people because if we really want to be progressive, we lay out everything for the sake of eternity. If you really want to contribute to humanity, stop seeing it as a blip on your radar and start seeing it as an eternity at stake. If we progress away from the horrors of sin and we come to the reconciliation of Christ Jesus in our own lives, why wouldn't we take that Christ everywhere we go? Do you want to meet a human need? Then know the human solution. Do you want to treat people as more than props in your own quest for selfish gratification? Then value their eternity with the same passion Christ valued your own eternity. You see, there's one thing I've noticed where this, this is just really small places where it becomes practical, is we have as a group and as a church and in my own life, discipleship's been hard for us. And part of that has to do with discipleship being different. Most of the people who walk into this room are different than you. Most of the people you share the gospel with on campus are different than you. Most every person in this world is different than you. And if we only are concerned with people who are like us, we will only realize that the only person who's like us is ourself. What drives us to discipleship, what drives us to evangelism, is knowing that God has called us to reconcile with those who are different because no one was more different than God than the humanity who sinned against him. And yet he pursued them. In your dating lives, in your thoughts on dating, are you thinking about, are you laboring towards contributing to change by valuing with deep passion the relationship of that other person with Christ? That changes not only what we do inside of that, it changes who we consider for dating. If that person cannot have the same love as us, why would we expect them to love us rightly? If they don't know the definition of true love, how can they really progress us in our own love? In your relationship with your friends, your parents, and your enemies, do you realize that the greatest service you can give them, the greatest peace you can lay out, is the truly human message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We who have been reconciled, we once stood far off, but we've now been brought near. 
Let's not withdraw back into sinful isolation, but let's go forward where it's hard. Let's go forward where we're dealing with real humans in real ways because we're not going to settle for isolated, individualistic, insulated, digital fellowship because Jesus didn't come to redeem Twitter icons and Instagram posts. He came to redeem people like you and me and it's his gospel and his people which will do that. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. I just want to leave us with this as we close. It says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you humble us tonight. We pray that we are struck at the contrast that stands between Jesus and ourselves. That we see our own hearts as our own worst enemies. We see our own sin as the greatest enemy this world will ever know. And we see Jesus as the one who slays the passion which strikes our families, which strikes our friends, and which strikes ourselves. Lord, we pray that because we have been reconciled to you, that we are able to not only bring reconciliation to physical and tangible needs in our world, but also to spiritual and eternal needs. Lord, let us not divorce or divide the two, but realize the greatest physical need and the greatest spiritual need often come hand in hand as hearts are changed to be not only humble in mindset, but concerned and active in pursuing the interest of others over the interests of ourselves. Pray this happens in our midst and we become a greater, stronger, more evangelistic group because of it. Lord, we need your help. We need it now. Pray this in your name. Amen.